Book One, Chapter One of One of Ours. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Weiss. One of Ours by Willa Cather. Book One on Lovely Creek. Chapter One. Claude Wheeler opened his eyes before the sun was up and vigorously shook his younger brother who lay in the other half of the same bed. "'Ralph! Ralph, get awake! Come down and help me wash the car.' "'What for?' "'Why, aren't we going to the circus today?' "'Car's all right. Let me alone.' The boy turned over and pulled the sheet up to his face to shut out the light which was beginning to come through the curtainless windows. Claude rose and dressed, a simple operation which took very little time. He crept down two flights of stairs, feeling his way in the dusk, his red hair standing up in peaks, like a cock's comb. He went through the kitchen into the adjoining washroom, which held two porcelain stands with running water. Everybody had washed before going to bed, apparently, and the bowls were ringed with a dark sediment which the hard alkaline water had not dissolved. Shutting the door on this disorder, he turned back to the kitchen, took Mahaley's tin basin, doused his face and head in cold water, and began to plaster down his wet hair. Old Mahaley herself came in from the yard with her apron full of corn cobs to start a fire in the kitchen stove. She smiled at him in the foolish fond way she often had with him when they were alone. "'What are you getting up for already, boy? You going to the circus before breakfast?' Don't you make no noise, else you'll have em all down here before I get my fire a-goin'. All right, Mahaley. Claude caught up his cap and ran out of doors, down the hillside, toward the barn. The sun popped up over the edge of the prairie like a broad, smiling face. The light poured across the close-cropped August pastures and the hilly-timbered windings of Lovely Creek, a clear little stream with a sand bottom that curled and twisted playfully about through the south section of the big Wheeler Ranch. It was a fine day to go to the circus at Frankfurt, a fine day to do anything, the sort of day that must, somehow, turn out well. Claude backed the little Ford car out of its shed, ran it up to the horse tank, and began to throw water on the mud-crusted wheels and windshield. While he was at work the two hired men, Dan and Jerry, came shambling down the hill to feed the stock. Jerry was grumbling and swearing about something, but Claude wrung out his wet rags and, beyond a nod, paid no attention to them. Somehow his father always managed to have the roughest and dirtiest hired men in the country working for him. Claude had a grievance against Jerry just now, because of his treatment of one of the horses. Molly was a faithful old mare, the mother of many colts. Claude and his younger brother had learned to ride on her. This man Jerry, taking her out to work one morning, let her step on a board with a nail sticking up in it. He pulled the nail out of her foot, saying nothing to anybody, and drove her to the cultivator all day. Now she had been standing in her stall for weeks, patiently suffering, her body wretchedly thin, and her legs swollen until it looked like an elephant's. She would have to stand there, the veterinary said, 
until her hoof came off and she grew a new one, and she would always be stiff. Jerry had not been discharged, and he exhibited the poor animal as if she were a credit to him. Mahaley came out on the hilltop and rang the breakfast bell. After the hired men went up to the house, Claude slipped into the barn to see that Molly had got her share of oats. She was eating quietly, her head hanging, and her scaly, dead-looking foot lifted just a little from the ground. When he stroked her neck and talked to her she stopped grinding and gazed at him mournfully. She knew him, and wrinkled her nose and drew her upper lip back from her worn teeth to show that she liked being petted. She let him touch her foot and examine her leg. When Claude reached the kitchen his mother was sitting at one end of the breakfast table, pouring weak coffee, his brother and Dan and Jerry were in their chairs, and Mahaley was baking griddle cakes at the stove. A moment later Mr. Wheeler came down the enclosed stairway and walked the length of the table to his own place. He was a very large man, taller and broader than any of his neighbors. He seldom wore a coat in summer, and his rumpled shirt bulged out carelessly over the belt of his trousers. His florid face was clean-shaven, likely to be a trifle tobacco-stained about the mouth, and it was conspicuous both for good nature and coarse humor, and for an imperturbable physical composure. Nobody in the country had ever seen Nat Wheeler flustered about anything, and nobody had ever heard him speak with complete seriousness. He kept up his easy-going, jocular affability even with his own family. As soon as he was seated Mr. Wheeler reached for the two-pint sugar bowl and began to pour sugar into his coffee. Ralph asked him if he were going to the circus. Mr. Wheeler winked. "'I shouldn't wonder if I happened in town sometime before the elephants get away.' He spoke very deliberately, with a state of main drawl, and his voice was smooth and agreeable. "'You boys better start in early, though.' You can take the wagon and the mules and load in the cowhides. The butcher has agreed to take them. Claude put down his knife. Can't we have the car? I've washed it on purpose. And what about Dan and Jerry? They want to see the circus just as much as you do, and I want the hides should go in. They're bringing a good price now. I don't mind about your washing the car. Mud preserves the paint, they say but it'll be all right this time, Claude." The hired men haw-hawed and Ralph giggled. Claude's freckled face got very red. The pancake grew stiff and heavy in his mouth and was hard to swallow. His father knew he hated to drive the mules to town, and knew how he hated to go anywhere with Dan and Jerry. As for the hides, they were the skins of four steers that had perished in the blizzard last winter through the wanton carelessness of these same hired men, and the price they would bring would not half pay for the time his father had spent in stripping and curing them. They had lain in a shed loft all summer, and the wagon had been to town a dozen times. But today, when he wanted to go to Frankfurt clean and carefree, he must take these stinking hides and two coarse-mouthed men and drive a pair of mules that always brayed and balked and behaved ridiculously in a crowd. Probably his father had looked out of the window and seen him washing the car, and had put this up on him while he dressed. It was like his father's idea of a joke. 
Mrs. Wheeler looked at Claude sympathetically, feeling that he was disappointed. Perhaps she, too, suspected a joke. She had learned that humor might wear almost any guise. When Claude started for the barn after breakfast she came running down the path, calling to him faintly. Hurrying always made her short of breath. Overtaking him she looked up with solicitude, shading her eyes with her delicately formed hand. "'If you want, I should do up your linen coat, Claude. I can iron it while you're hitching,' she said wistfully. Claude stood kicking at a bunch of mottled feathers that had once been a young chicken. His shoulders were drawn high, his mother saw, and his figure suggested energy and determined self-control. "'You needn't mind, mother,' he spoke rapidly, muttering his words. "'I'd better wear my old clothes if I have to take the hides. They're greasy, and in the sun they'll smell worse than fertilizer. The men can handle the hides, I should think. Wouldn't you feel better in town to be dressed?' She was still blinking up at him. "'Don't bother about it. Put me out a clean-colored shirt if you want to. That's all right.' He turned toward the barn, and his mother went slowly back the path up to the house. She was so plucky and so stooped, his dear mother. He guessed if she could stand having these men about, could cook and wash for them, he could drive them to town. Half an hour after the wagon left, Nat Wheeler put on an alpaca coat and went off in the rattling buckboard in which, though he kept two automobiles, he still drove about the country. He said nothing to his wife. It was her business to guess whether or not he would be home for dinner. She and Mahaley could have a good time scrubbing and sweeping all day, with no men around to bother them. There were few days in the year when Wheeler did not drive off somewhere, to an auction sale or a political convention or a meeting of the farmer's telephone directors, to see how his neighbors were getting on with their work if there was nothing else to look after. He preferred his buckboard to a car because it was light, went easily over heavy or rough roads, and was so rickety that he never felt he must suggest his wife's accompanying him. Besides, he could see the country better when he didn't have to keep his mind on the road. He had come to this part of Nebraska when the Indians and the buffalo were still about, remembered the grasshopper year and the big cyclone, had watched the farms emerge one by one from the great rolling page where once only the wind wrote its story. He had encouraged new settlers to take up homesteads, urged on courtships, lent young fellows the money to marry on, seen families grow and prosper until he felt a little as if all this were his own enterprise. The changes, not only those the years made, but those the seasons made, were interesting to him. People recognized Nat Wheeler and his cart a mile away. He sat massive and comfortable, weighing down one end of the slanting seat, his driving hand lying on his knee. Even his German neighbors, the Yoders, who hated to stop work for a quarter of an hour on any account, were glad to see him coming. The merchants in the little towns about the county missed him if he didn't drop in once a week or so. He was active in politics, never ran for an office himself, but often took up the cause of a friend and conducted his campaign for him. The French saying, Joy of the street, sorrow of the home, was exemplified in Mr. Wheeler, though not at all in the French way. 
His own affairs were of secondary importance to him. In the early days he had homesteaded and bought and leased enough land to make him rich. Now he had only to rent it out to good farmers who liked to work. He didn't, and of that he made no secret. When he was at home he usually sat upstairs in the living room reading newspapers. He subscribed for a dozen or more. The list included a weekly devoted to scandal, and he was well informed about what was going on in the world. He had magnificent health, and illness in himself or in other people struck him as humorous. To be sure, he never suffered from anything more perplexing than toothache or boils or an occasional bilious attack. Wheeler gave liberally to churches and charities, was always ready to lend money or machinery to a neighbor who was short of anything. He liked to tease and shock diffident people, and had an inexhaustible supply of funny stories. Everybody marveled that he got on so well with his oldest son, Bayless Wheeler. Not that Bayless was exactly diffident, but he was a narrow-gauge fellow, the sort of prudent young man one wouldn't expect Nat Wheeler to like. Bayless had a farm implement business in Frankfurt, and though he was still under thirty he had made a very considerable financial success. Perhaps Wheeler was proud of his son's business acumen. At any rate, he drove to town to see Bayless several times a week, went to sales and stock exhibits with him, and sat about his store for hours at a stretch, joking with the farmers who came in. Wheeler had been a heavy drinker in his day, and was still a heavy feeder. Bayliss was thin and dyspeptic, and a virulent prohibitionist. He would have liked to regulate everybody's diet by his own feeble constitution. Even Mrs. Wheeler, who took the men God had apportioned her for granted, wondered how Bayliss and his father could go off to conventions together and have a good time, since their ideas of what made a good time were so different. Once every few years, Mr. Wheeler bought a new suit and a dozen stiff shirts and went back to Maine to visit his brothers and sisters, who were very quiet, conventional people. But he was always glad to get home to his old clothes, his big farm, his buckboard, and Bayless. Mrs. Wheeler had come out from Vermont to be principal of the high school, when Frankfurt was a frontier town and Nat Wheeler was a prosperous bachelor. He must have fancied her for the same reason he liked his son Bayliss, because she was so different. There was this to be said for Nat Wheeler, that he liked every sort of human creature. He liked good people and honest people, and he liked rascals and hypocrites almost to the point of loving them. If he heard that a neighbor had played a sharp trick or done something particularly mean, he was sure to drive over to see the man at once as if he hadn't hitherto appreciated him. There was a large loafing dignity about Claude's father. He liked to provoke others to uncouth laughter, but he never laughed immoderately himself. In telling stories about him people often tried to imitate his smooth senatorial voice, robust but never loud. Even when he was hilariously delighted by anything, as when poor Mahaley, undressing in the dark on a summer night, sat down on the sticky fly-paper, he was not boisterous. He was a jolly, easy-going father, indeed, for a boy who was not thin-skinned. 
End of Book One, Chapter One. Recording by Tom Weiss.